Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. Hello everyone and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the world-famous Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly and I'm joined on the podcast today by both Charlie Eccleshare and Jack Pitt-Brook uh, to look back on a pretty exhilarating 5-1 win over Newcastle. And I think both of you were there, so I'll start off with best four names only. Charlie Spurs didn't miss a beat even when they went behind and were pretty impressive throughout. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they. I think it. We all said at the time, and it felt like a really important moment. The equaliser so soon after going behind, and it is amazing because I think it could have been a really awkward second half had Newcastle held on till half time. They, for those first forty minutes, Spurs had looked a bit lacklustre. And I thought, Danny, to your maxim of I can, I know what the result's going to be after five minutes, and I imagine you weren't feeling too heartened because I, I thought it was one of those games where they they started sluggishly, and that often leads to a calamitous. Uh, result for Spurs, which is one of the reasons why I was so impressed with the way that they kept going even when they were poor um, in the first half. And then whatever Conte did or said, which no doubt you two will help me with at half time, after that, they looked a different team and were really, really good. But you're right, they, they started off, it was just a bit slow motion and that never augurs well for me. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing. But then the way they came back into it so impressively, so quickly and getting that equaliser back straight away. I mean, it's so funny, the psychology of football, because I think if Newcastle gone in nil-nil, they would have felt like, yeah, we've, that's exactly what we wanted. We've had a really good half and we're well set up for more of the same in the second. As it was, they seemed really frazzled by conceding an equaliser and how talked about it after they... They sort of went chasing the game when they they really didn't need to because one one was still a would have been a brilliant result for them. But Spurs were absolutely ruthless the way they took advantage of that. And and as much as we can say that well it's only Newcastle they're not that great in their previous eleven games in none of them they conceded more than a goal in a single match. So they're not it's not as if they were these complete patsies who turned up and couldn't defend. They can defend. That's why they've been a lot better in those eleven games. But Spurs just ripped them apart and. 
I tweeted earlier, they, there's a slight feel to me of the Liverpool 13-14 team in that run-in when they had an unbelievable front three of Suarez, Sturridge and Sterling and they just looked like they could score so many goals. And I get that feeling with Tottenham at the moment. Five wins from six now, three in a row. Those are both in the league. And they're scoring so many goals every game. They're, I mean, they're scoring more than three, I think, in their last six on I average. Think they, I'm, right, I'm right in saying that, that I mean, we'll, I've got lots of numbers to throw around this morning, more than anyone else in the Premier League since January the 1st. Yeah. And so, if you if you bear in mind that some of their results in, in, in the earlier part of this year were dreadful, uh, that's, that's pretty impressive going. Well, it's amazing. I, I tweeted before the Leeds game that they had a negative goal difference. At that point, they had a minus two goal difference. And now up to plus 15. So that's a 17 swing in six games. I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Jack is pawning the ground to give us his initial impressions of what happened at White Hart Lane. Yeah, I just, I got this quite strong feeling from watching that game in the last few that Tottenham have quite satisfyingly clicked now. They've won, what, five out of the last six in the Premier League ever since the Burnley meltdown. And yesterday was really just a continuation of that. Like even though in the first half and out, first forty minutes, really their attacking play wasn't that good. Once they sorted that out, and I don't know exactly how that was, I'd be interested to hear people's theories on it. Some of the go- some of the football they played in the second half, especially, was amazing. Son's they goal scored, was a like, brilliant team Son's, goal. Son's goal was so good. That's like the classic, classic Conte goal. But even like Kane's Kane's cross for the Doherty goal was amazing. The Doherty Emerson goal was a little bit scrappy, but the, the the mere fact of having both wing backs in the opposition penalty Bloody area at the same backs. time, yeah, it's the kind of thing that um, you know is exactly how Conte wants his team to play. So, uh, yeah, as an example of like the the heights that this team can hit in terms of their attacking play, Danny, I thought it was really, really, really impressive. I mean, before we go on to the individual components of the team and the individuals themselves, just something about the collective. I always think this is one of the most double edged stats. Um, that you can ever throw at a team. But they have now got more points from losing positions than any other team in the Premier League this season. Now, of course I get that, um, that you, I mean, you, you know, it means you're falling behind lots of times. But overall, Jack, that is a, I always think that's a very positive stat because we all know, statistically, the first goal in a Premier League match gives you, a, I think, a high 80s, early 90s percentage chance of not losing the game, yet Spurs are turning games around. They have to, but still take. I think it's good, good sign that the spirit in the team there. Yeah. So one word that Conte used a few times in his press conference afterwards was trust. He said that you know the players really trust me now, and I really trust them. And I think what that means, as well as trusting Conte, is they trust. You know, they they trust the Conte system. They believe that if they just do what Conte tells them to do, it will work. And so even if they go one goal down in this game, or they start badly in other games, as they often sometimes do. Or they go behind, you know, they've had some games where they've been gone through really difficult periods like the City game, for example, and still manage to get the results. So, And that's really what, if you look at what defines City and Liverpool, is the fact that the players have this incredible belief in the manager's plan A, and they don't really need to be flexible or whatever, because they, they believe that if they continue doing what they're doing, what they've been trained to do on the, on the training field, they will be able to score goals and beat teams. So the fact that Tottenham are doing that and the players are continuing to execute those plans, even in moments of difficulty or pressure or stress when they've gone behind, I think that does that does underline that trust that Conte was talking about in that sense that the you know the players have fully bought into this now. Well, that was very much the theme of yesterday, I think, and was what I wrote about after the game, was this feeling that, I mean, yeah, Conte talked about it a lot. 
and it does feel as though the the thing he's working towards i think is you know system is king for conte he wants a situation whereby you can slot players in players are going to come in out the team especially over the course of a season you're going to have injuries but you can do that because they're so it becomes so automatic we see this with city and liverpool they they know exactly what they're doing that even when players go out and that was the sign of the great pochettino's team you think to the the way walker uh, rose davis and trippier for a period kind of interchange and there wouldn't be much of a drop off in quality that's what he's pushing towards and so when you see a goal scored by the third choice left wing back to the second choice right wing back which and as jack says that wing back to wing back is the platonic ideal of what a conte team should look like that is you know a real sign that the players are whoever it is are getting to grips with with how conte wants to play and then of course the fifth goal is mora coming on setting up bergvine and that's been an issue for Tottenham for a long time, including under Conte. You know, Conte hasn't has often said and hinted at the fact he doesn't think his squad is big enough, deep enough, good enough. Um, he his, he's been he's named the same team three times before Sunday um, and made late changes. I mean, we're not talking to like late seventies, early eighties in those games. So clearly, you know, he's still not totally sold on on all of his squad, but he's managed to create a situation whereby when they do come in. They can deliver and that's really, really important, both because you are going to get injuries and because it does show that all the players are buying into what he's he's trying to do. Yeah, and also I think it was an illustration of how much he trusts um, Davis at the back or mistrusts Sanchez and Rodon. That a person who's played left-sided defender a hundred times for his country, he would rather play Doherty on his wrong foot than move him out of the defence there or move one of those two gentlemen into the back three. I want to talk about the wing-backs now, partially, Jack, to, in order to tease you, because um, just before they worked their wing-back magic, I suspect your phone had been hacked, possibly by a relative or a close friend, because you said how rubbish they were on our private WhatsApp, which I'm only too happy to reveal now. Yeah, so w- whenever I do a bad tweet, it's because Charlie is actually... I've gone... I've, I've left my seat at the stadium, and Charlie's <laughs> yeah. actually just typed it in to... Mm. to to troll me but i in yeah i mean i got that one very very wrong obviously so my 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 thinking before the game was why would you why would you switch doherty to the left and to squeeze in emerson royale on the right why not stick with doherty on the right because at least he's good and then yeah emerson will be pretty blunt on the left but then at least that way you've got one really good wing back and that if you had by moving Doherty to the left to accommodate Emerson, you're effectively blunting yourself on both sides. So th- that was my opinion before the game. I put it on Twitter. I got lots of likes. I felt that kind of dopamine buzz of yeah. people liking your tweet and agreeing with you and that validation. I thought, yes, yes, what a good take, what a great take. I've nailed this one again. Yeah. And then obviously when the game started, and they actually, frankly, for the first thirty minutes. When Doherty was struck, you know, wasn't it's not like he was a regular who like bombs down that side and gets a left foot cross in. I always think, and there was lots of times where you know Emerson would get the ball in space, they'd switch the ball out to Emerson, and then he would not really do much with it in the final third. And I was thinking, yeah, pretty good tweet actually. Yeah, I'll, I'll but, think I'll, I'll double down on that. But it all changed because in the end, it turns out that contrary to contrary to how I felt beforehand, Antonio Conte may in fact know slightly more about football than I do. And because not only was Doherty really good on the left, obviously making that dart inside for his header, which was a great goal, the cross for Royale for Royale's goal, but actually Royale got pretty well involved in the second half, I thought, and the plan actually turned out pretty well. 
I mean, there was there was a. I mean, obviously, Royale getting the goal from where he did was a surprise. And again, uh, hats off to Conte for who everyone talks about the system, but you still have to have a, a sense of personal freedom to make that run as far forward as he did. And then it got. We had the reverse late on when Harry Kane was doing his best to get on the score sheet, and he tried that inside of the left foot shot that hit Emerson Royal on the back of the head, who was ahead of him in the, in, in the, on the field. I mean, it was absolutely bonkers by that stage. Yeah, it is. I've been looking at this, some, some, of, some of the footage from this game and recent games, and you can you, you look at it, and it is incredible, some of the ambition of the wing-backs. And, and clearly, you know... Romero's back, also obviously encouraged and Romero, to get yeah, absolutely I mean, forward. Well, I mean, you look at Maguire's own goal. That comes because Romero, he's actually offside. He's so far forward. He, he's basically like three yards from goal. Uh, that one against United. And that all comes from that word again, trust. Trust that A, I can do this. And B, if I do this, good stuff might happen. It's interesting with Doherty because I was talking to a couple of people in Ireland and they were saying he has played left wing back and done it very well. You might remember Danny he played against mm. Portugal there he in did. September and was outstanding. And then I was speaking to Tim Spears who said uh, uh, when they were at Wolves, he uh, came into the team actually as a left back in 2015-16 uh, and was brilliant there as a left back in the championship. And actually, Tim said he's often preferred playing there and at Wolves would train on that flank. So he's he's probably more comfortable there than I think we realised. And, and that showed because that assist, that manoeuvre where he manages to chop back onto his right foot to work the yard uh, for the cross is, is a really smart manoeuvre. But yeah, I mean, when you've got... This is the thing, when you've got players who feel comfortable in a system that they can look so much better and so different to what you thought they were. I mean, Emerson Royale, when Conte arrived and for most of the season has been a solid, if unspectacular right back, not even a right wing back. It's not his position. And so to, for him to be doing it and then to be popping up with a sort of poacher's goal is, uh, yeah, it's testament to what Conte is trying to do. Right. Here's one. I, I don't know if you've seen this, but um, my great friend and of course, fantastic journalist, Mark Langdon, of the Racing Post, if I might be so bold, sent me this. In his 14 starts this season, Matt Doherty at wing-back has scored more goals and had more assists than Giovanni Lo Celso in his entire Tottenham career. <laughs> Here are the stats. 55 games for Gio, uh, 14 for Matt, uh, one goal for Lo Celso, two for Matt Doherty, three assists for Lo Celso, and four for Matt Doherty. Now, I, I'm pretty sure I'm saying this because I, get, I got fed up with, with Lo Celso, but it is, a, it is an interesting thing as well. And of course, uh, there's something else here, isn't there? This thing with Conte and pushing the fullbacks and let's leave Romero in as well, the defenders into these extraordinarily advanced positions. Partly, I think it is, we use the word a lot on this podcast, both positively and negatively about Spurs. In this case, it is to create chaos because... I don't care how well coached you are, if Reguillon, Sessegnon, Doherty, if they're running to within one yard of the post, I can't think of many forward players who are going to make that defensive run. And I can't think of many teams efficient enough, maybe Liverpool, to do the baton handing back through the entire length of the pitch to make sure that that run is followed. And of course it has risks. You've got defensive players, as we saw, forward and centre forward. And, you know, teams are very adept at breaking. But it is a, it's interesting that in a world where everyone talks about the, the systems being so rigid and Conte's one that gets accused of that. In fact, what he's trying to do is to create enough chaos 
in the opposition's defense, not just breaking the lines and all that stuff. It's not geometric. It's it's much more of a bomb that arrives in your penalty area. I think it depends what you mean by rigid in the sense that Conte's football is very prescribed. I don't think the Tottenham players are doing anything that Tottenham that Conte doesn't want them to do. So even compared to Pochettino, like Pochettino's football, I think there was quite a bit more trust given to the players in terms of the positions that they were to take up, especially in the final third, mm-hmm. than with Conte. So I don't think... I think when Romero goes forward or when Davis goes forward, it's not like they're doing something that Conte wouldn't want them to do. Because if they did that, they wouldn't get in the team. So I don't think it's purely chaotic. But equally, I do think it is surprising in the sense that it's unusual to have a centre-back like Romero attack as much as he does. And I can't, I genuinely can't remember a, an example of a, someone who plays in the back three like Romero who comes far... Not only is he a brilliant defender, we, we talk about that He was time, amazing again yesterday. He comes yesterday. so far forward with the ball. He starts almost all of Tottenham's attacks. He often gets in, you know, he will continue his run into the box if he doesn't have the ball. He will often end up playing in a kind of advanced midfield position, picking passes, trying to play one-twos, trying to disrupt the opposition. So even though it has the effect on the opposition of being chaotic in the sense that the opposition don't have to handle it and the opposition are getting dragged around the pitch, I don't think it's chaotic in the sense no, that... No, 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 that was my point. It, it, yeah. it is designed um, uh, not to be rigid in itself, um, but, but to... to destroy the rigidity the fundamentals of the opposition yeah Yeah. i don't think it i don't think they're going kind of off piece oh no i think it's very and i don't you know what i don't think teams know how to stop it i don't think teams opponents haven't got us what do you do when you've got romero running at you like it's it's pretty it's pretty difficult because you've already like spurs find a way not to actually i mean the sign of a good team is always that they attack and defend with a lot of players at the same time and that's exactly what tottenham do because when if you've got Romero coming forward, then you've got a front three and you've got two wing backs, and all of a sudden Spurs are attacking with kind of six players, seven if you add one of the two midfielders. So it's pretty, it's pretty tough to stop. That is something that's so striking. Looking at some of the, going through some of the Spurs goals is how many men are in the box that they're absolutely packing the box, and and such a big reason underpinning all of this is the fitness. We've talked about it again and again and again, but you can only do, you know, what looks quite easy in a way. Is, is only when you've got players who are exceptionally fit and back themselves to be able to get up and down in the way, you know, that a Christian Romero can do that. Ben Davis, I talked about this earlier in the season, and it, and it seems amazing to be linking chaos with someone who we, we've always thought of this personification of, you know, sensible and that kind of thing. But Solidity, he, but, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But he, what he, he does a similar thing over on the left because he goes into areas, the opposition teams aren't really sure who's going to be picking him up. And having those two wingbacks who are so advanced and so wide, that does then open up a lot of space for that front three. And they're so, so good at exploiting it. I mean, all three of them, again, absolutely outstanding. And no system is perfect, of course, because otherwise Manchester City would be five times already uh, champions of Europe. But uh, And of course, the very, the very, very best coaches and the very, very best teams will look at Romero and the field of the wingbacks flying forward and they'll be accepting the chaos is, is coming into their defence, but they'll also be thinking there has by definition got to be space behind that Spurs midfield and they'll be looking to exploit that. But while it's working as well as it is, I don't want to, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't complain too it much. It is interesting how, I mean, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head here, but I can't think of many, with the ex- with the possible exception of the second Man United goal and the 3-2 at Old Trafford, I don't really... Spurs don't really get caught out on the break that much. 
They're quite good. I mean, that's no. kind of the, this, that's one of the things that City and Liverpool do so well is they play high up the pitch, they defend on the halfway line, they throw people forward, including you know for Liverpool both fullbacks at the same time, and yet they're really good at not getting countered. Now with Liverpool, that's more to do with brilliant offside trap they play. With City, it's more to do with a the very aggressive press and b tactical fouling. Mm-hmm. But with Tottenham, you kind of think. You know, a team that does defend that high up the pitch, that does throw players forward, that's only been working with this manager for four months, so it's not like they've been there for five years, like Pep and Klopp. And yet Tottenham, again, this this is a topic I'd be interested to, I'd be interested to read or hear some theories on this. They are really good at not getting countered. Yeah, I, I'd like to, the numbers would be interesting there. I, I can't think of many where where they've overcommitted. But but this is, this whole ties into a wider debate that Jack and I have spoken about before. On the the misconception sometimes that you know Liverpool uh, with their heavy metal football are just kind of like up and at it, which is absolutely not the case. Look at their midfield; that's just not the case. No. Well, exactly, but also that you know the way they attack is also very well organised, very well regimented. Obviously, Guardiola, his teams attack with this surgical precision, which obviously people now realise. But there was a time when it just seemed like wow, we've never seen a team attack like this, which is true. But that that stems from just you know working out those plans making it automatic and obviously that was has has been Mourinho's failing in a way and that he hasn't adapted his teams to be able to do that in quite the same uh, sort of fashion where it actually has been and again it's interesting because it goes against the common perception of him being very well drilled which is true defensively but attacking wise it has always been more a uh, you know, go and express yourselves. And we saw that last season with, and it worked to an extent because they had Kane and Son and Kane's intelligent enough that yes, he, he can work out a system really well, but he can also improvise. But it's, uh, yeah, that you know, the, the Conte system, the process, it's all at the moment, it's all coming good. Let's uh, move on then because I think one of the reasons why some of this stuff we're talking about where a team that is not elite, as Spurs are not elite at the moment, can do this attacking and not get caught in the break is partially because somehow it must be because of the way Kane is playing. Um, because so many of the balls going forward never come back towards the defence. They always end up going to another attacker. They often end up pushing the, the opposition way back. And in the second half yesterday, and what joy that Spurs get five goals and he got none of them, although he won't share my joy at that. Um, someone, One of you will be able to tell me the last time that happened. Jack but, crunch those numbers. <laughs> Danny, I, I don't know if you were following me on Twitter yesterday. No I, I was. Me, I, no, I really was I looking, looking for you to make mistakes so I could pick you up, up on them. In the kind of, after the game, I sat there while the press box emptied out and just went on soccer base for 15 minutes, which is Minimum. My, ha- Minimum. My, happy, my happy place. <laughs> just sat there on soccer base. So I can tell you, I can tell you the exact answer to this. So the first, it's the first time that Tottenham have had five different goal scorers since they won 7-1 at Hull City on the last day of the 2016-17 season, where they get three goals from De- from Harry Kane, one from Ben Davis, whatever happened to him, and then one from Deli Ali, Victor Wanyama, and Toby Alderweireld. Then I was thinking, when was the last time that Spurs had... I think I love that because there's something very satisfying about having five different goal scorers. It's, it's better in a 5-1 than in a 7-1. Yeah. It's better to have one goal per person, yes, but yeah, whatever. Even so. Um, the last time Spurs had five different goal scorers and none of them were Kane, well, the first answer I came up to this was the famous 9-1 against Wigan Athletic in November 2009, where Peter Crouch opened the scoring, Jermaine Defoe got five, Aaron Lennon scored, Chris Kirkland owned goal, and then the great Nico Crankjar. But then Charlie and I decided that having an own goal in there was kind of unsatisfying because it's not four different Tottenham players. 
Fortunately, earlier that season, <laughs> in the 2009-10 season, Spurs did have a game where they, fi- they scored five goals away at Doncaster in the League Cup. Five different goal scorers, none of them Harry Kane. Tottenham goal scorers in that game were Tom Huddleston, Peter Crouch, David Bentley, my mate Jamie O'Hara, and Roman Pavlyuchenko. Such a good, such a satisfying list of goal scorers. Know, at, well. the, at the risk Very of, of, of sending you straight back onto soccer base, Jack, um, do we count wing-backs these days as defenders? Because I can't remember the last time three different defenders scored for Spurs in a game either. Good question. That is a good question. I mean, because also there was something, this was Royale's first goal for the club, yep. Doherty's first home goal for yep. the club. And it was David, apparently it was Davis's first home goal in five years, which seemed... Seems surprised because in my head he's somebody who does pop up with the odd goal. Who's got a header before? This is what we were talking about yesterday, weren't we? I'm not sure. I don't like call him scoring header. Somebody said Aston Villa FA Cup. Oh yeah. I kind of very, very vague. Don't really remember that to be very honest. There was that one as well earlier in the season against Brentford when everyone thought he'd scored a header, but it was actually an own goal, unfortunately. Well, I, I'm, I'm still happy to count uh, the wing-backs as defenders. I mean, no doubt you can waste the whole of the rest of the day, um, Jack, <laughs> looking up when the last time three Spurs defenders uh, got on the score sheet. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. Kane, um, second half, nuts. I mean, an insane performance of almost, almost deciding, now, I will not even play any passes under 40 yards and all of them are going to be fantastic. That one round the back for Doherty, that was so good. There's something so satisfying about that kind of curled pass that comes round the back of the defence onto the runner from the far side. Charlie suggested it might be meant for Son, which I think maybe it was. I think so too. I'm going to think in my head that it was meant for Doherty. It's one of those Kane passes that the only other, and I'm sure I've said this before, the only other player in the Premier League who, who plays that kind of thing is Kevin De Bruyne. Yeah. And Kane can do that as well as a whole other side of the game as well. So that was great. The one to Kulisevsky for the Son goal. There was one where, I think in an attack, which I don't think came to much, where I think Kane kind of had, somebody had the, I think it might have been Dyer or Romero had the ball in defence. They fired the ball into Kane. And then Kane kind of angled his body in a weird way and whipped the ball up around the corner. He volleyed, he, he volleyed the ball around the, the corner. One, yeah. Unbelievable. It was nuts. It was completely <laughs> nuts. There was that one for Son as well over the top. Which Son then put wide. Really, um, I mean, the trajectory of it is amazing because it's one where it's it's got to travel such a distance. So you think it's got to go too high that it won't have the pace, but he manages to hit it in such a way that it doesn't go so high, but it's high enough over the defenders. Masterclass for for the you know certainly the second half. I mean, you know, I saw a few groans in the first half, but yeah. I mean, and just just a thought about this between now and the end of the season. Um, home and away, every time Daniel Levy takes his seat, the, the supporters in the ground, Spurs fans and others should arrive, stand up and clap, applaud him to his seat. Because just imagine what Manchester City would be doing if they had Kane finishing and Kane and De Bruyne providing. It wouldn't be right. It would be immoral. And for, for we know that Levy stood his ground. And rarely do I say this, but we should all get up as he, as he makes his way to his seat and applaud him for the sake of uh, football in this country. There was a moment when I felt a bit sorry for Dan Byrne um, and a bit sorry for <laughs> Newcastle. Um, when Spurs made their substitution, they're already they're four up and all the rest of it. I get it. But to be confronted with Harry Kane up front and three behind him of Mora, Son and Bergvine, the slowest of which is probably Bergvine, and he is by no means a snail. It really was a, a nightmare for Newcastle towards the end. And well done to Mora and Bergvine doing the only thing they can do at the moment which is to come on and make a difference in the last few minutes of games. Byrne should have been sent off. 
He was on a yellow, and then he he pulled back Lucas cynically when Lucas set up Bergwijn. Now, this might be a kind of you are the ref thing, so I don't actually know the answer here, but just because <laughs> Bergwijn scored doesn't mean that Burn shouldn't have been sent off because it wouldn't have been a red card for denying a clear goal scoring opportunity, right? It was a professional a professional foul. He should still have been sent off. Is that bollocks? I don't know. Charlie's pulling a face. You rarely see... It's one of those sort of unspoken conventions. I don't really know whether... it should. You should be. I'm sure by the letter of the law, you, if, if you're allowed to get two bookings without the play stopping, as as happened to Martinelli in yeah. the season. I'm, sh- I'm sure by the laws of the game, Burn could, arguably should have been sent off. It's just the sort of thing that people tend to get away with, isn't it? I mean, there was that one, that famous one as well in the 2006 Champions League final when Lehman, Arsenal's Jens Lehman, brought down uh, Ludovic Juli, I think it was. Eto scored anyway. So in theory, he could have been both sent off and the goal given as it was play was stopped and he just yeah. got sent off. I don't know if that's different because that is a denying a clear goal score yeah. opportunity. So you can't you're have right, the... there, does, there does seem to be a convention, doesn't it? It's either a red card or a goal, but not both. Yeah, it's kind of like, well, you've, you know, just take your goal and shut up kind of thing. Uh, like like with many of the laws of football, a lot of it seems to be predicated on it's not perfect. But Common sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, exactly. if, if it had been nil-nil, I think the referee were, the referee's focus tends to be a lot more on the, the slight things that might change the game one way or another. When it was when it's a runaway victory, they do tend to let stuff go. Um, it's almost as if uh, Newcastle, in particular, Mr. Byrne, have had enough uh, on, on the afternoon. He, by the way, Matt Byrne, is a really good example of why defending against Spurs is so difficult because he, he kept getting dragged out of position. And, and for Son's goal, he comes and engages Kulisevsky and then Kulisevsky plays a 1-2 with Kane. And he's completely then done on, you know, when Kane returns the pass. And for Doherty's goal, he comes out to try and get to Kane and he sort of shoves him. But Kane gets rid, barges him off the ball, barges him so that Kane protects the ball. Kane then has the time to put the cross in and burns nowhere. But that, but that's the constant challenge that you have of, of what do you do? Because do, do you sit back? Or do you do you try and engage? And n- neither is ideal when you're up against someone as good as Kane. The interesting, I think, Jack, you might be making this point in in one of your uh, fantastic pieces for the Athletic. Of course, I, I sit here now, and we'll talk about it after the break. We'll talk about the running. I'm banging my head even more off the table with those results against Southampton, Burnley. While we're all praising the business done the gen- at the end of the January transfer window, and we say, by by the way. Thank you, Cristiano Ronaldo, whose wages have forced Juventus to divest themselves of Romero, Bentancur, and Kulusevski, which they wouldn't probably have done if they'd been properly run football club. Perasici playing the long game. Oh, absolutely. That is very, very good indeed. But the point <laughs> you're making, I think, in one of your pieces, what if Spurs had done this business in the first week of January? Well, yeah, that's the thing. Is like if I were to, I think that's the only critique that you can make of Tottenham's otherwise very impressive January transfer window is the fact they got Kulisewski and Benton Co right at the very end, and you know it's it took them a while for results to turn around. And I think if Tottenham don't get fourth, and I think it, you know it's pretty marginal at the moment. Yeah, the fact you know they lost to Saints the ninth of Feb, lost to Wolves on the thirteenth of Feb. Are really going to be this that the, the failure to get four or even six points in those games would have killed them if they had four or six points in those two games and assuming everything else three was the same, even they, three yeah they they'd be walking to fourth right now and the, the you know they didn't really have Kulisevsky and so Kulisevsky and Benton Kerr both came on in the second half of the Saints game 
And then in the Wolves game, uh, Benton Kerr started, Kulisewski came on after that early injury to Sessignon. But they weren't, they obviously like weren't fully integrated at that point. So I don't know, maybe I'm being overcritical, but I do think if they had, if they got those guys at the start of the window, which is when they were trying to get Diaz and Traore, etc., and then they'd been fully integrated in the team quicker and they'd won those games, and yeah, you know, who knows how things would have turned out hypothetically then I think they'd be walking to fourth right now. And just because you mentioned his name and I've got nothing against him personally, Barcelona's astonishing run that they're on now and are now up to second place from mid-table in Spain has all happened since they left Adama Traore out of the team. We'll have a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the run-in because as you're pointing out there, every game's a cup final now and all the rest, all, all those good cliches, the real issue for Spurs fans, of course, is that once again, as it's so, it seems to happen so often, it is a str- not a straight head-to-head. I don't think Manchester United are out of this yet, to be honest. The bookmakers make it a straight head-to-head between Spurs and Arsenal. We discuss that next from behind our fingers, like watching Doctor Who when you're a kid. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
Yeah, welcome back, everybody, to The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly, and today I'm joined by Jack Pitbrook and Charlie Eccleshare. And before the break, I was just saying, oh, I don't think Manchester United are out of the race for fourth place. And then I added to it during the break. I'm letting daylight in on magic here. You're all breaking the fourth wall. I also said, well, statistically, Nora West Ham, Nora Wolves, and Charlie and Jack, who I both respect immensely, both pulled faces. Um, why was that, Eccleshare? <laughs> well, United, I thought before the weekend... I've been, I've I've had to check myself and be like, yeah, you know what? Like, is they're, they're actually? I mean, going into the weekend, they're only a point behind Spurs, and yes, now they're only a point behind three. I, I would liken them to, in the same way, if you're two 0 up going into the last few minutes, of course the game's not over. But even even if you're playing against a team who seem to have done nothing, but all the evidence suggests, and in the same way, United, yeah, statistically, of course they could come back into it and make us look stupid. It just feels as though. They have no momentum. They don't really seem to know what they're doing. I, I can't see it. Cl- I can't see it changing and clicking. And yeah, you might have said the same about. And many people did. Many people told me I was mad to keep thinking Spurs would get top four and that Conte was doing a good job when they were on a similarly bad run. But I just, I just can't see United doing enough themselves and then relying on both Arsenal and Spurs to to collapse. I, I guess uh, my fear of United is purely that uh, you know on the players they have. But at the moment, if you compare at Spurs, you'll say they've got you know some very very good footballers, but no discernible pattern whatsoever. So I'll accept that Spurs and Arsenal hard games as well. Yeah, Spurs and Arsenal are obviously the favourites. Arsenal are quite short with the bookmakers, and one accepted some of you will be hearing this podcast after. Monday night's game um, at Crystal Palace. They do have, Jack, a game where if you're a Spurs fan, you could be hoping that they might might drop a point or two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, Tottenham are unlikely to win all eight remaining games. I think they're very unlikely. Yeah. The way. They obviously need to beat Arsenal and they will need Arsenal to drop points in, I don't know, two other games, maybe three other games. And maybe tonight will be the night. You know, Palace are pretty good. They're really well organised. They've got lots of very, very exciting technical players who can hurt you. Uh, so it's a huge, huge test for Arsenal. And it's like we, it's like Charlie and I were saying on the pod last week, this is now a really high-quality race for fourth. Tottenham are playing really well and Arsenal are playing really well. Both, like, Arsenal and Tottenham in their in their current level of form are much better than teams that normally scrape fourth in the Premier League. If you extrapolated the second half of Arsenal and Tottenham season, you know, they're not 70-point teams. You know, they're playing like 80-plus point teams at the moment, both of them. You know, uh, they're playing like they could easily be coming third or even challenging in a, in a world in which City and Liverpool didn't exist at the top of the table. So it's a, it is a high quality race of fourth and there's not a lot of margin for error at all. Just, I mean, oh, you're right. Spurs have got no wiggle room at all. We, I think we, you know, they've won at Manchester City, but they're liable to lose at Liverpool. They've got the Derby game against Arsenal as yet without a date. So they've got very, very little wiggle room. And here's the other thing, Charlie. People are absolutely right to say Arsenal have got some very, very tough fixtures. However, the way they've fallen means that their next three, away to Palace, home to Brighton, away to Southampton, it is perfectly possible, given the form that we discussed in the last couple of minutes, they could get nine points out of those and put a very different light on the race for fourth. They could, but if they don't, if they don't do brilliantly from that cluster of three, their next three is Chelsea away, United at home, West Ham away. Yeah. So that's, that's three really, really hard games. Mm. So... 
they almost need to give themselves a bit of a buffer and get good results in these three games. And and they're not gimmies. I mean, Palace have just drawn with City at home. Palace beat Spurs 3-0 earlier in the season. Mm-hmm. Palace should have got something from Chelsea in there in, in the game at Selhurst Park, lost late. One thing I do think is quite interesting, j- just on the kind of theme of momentum. So Spurs have won five of their last six in the league. And the results have been extremely emphatic. 4-0, 5-0, 2-0, 3-1, 5-1 in their five wins. Arsenal have won six from seven, but their results have been 1-0, 2-1, 2-1, 3-2, 2-0, 1-0. Narrow wins. And, and I just feel as though Arsenal are basically, at the moment, winning games with a striker that doesn't score goals. And... That is fine until it stops being fine. Yeah. And I and I and I think there is a sense at Arsenal that, you know, having Lacazette doing all the facilitating that he's doing is great. But there will come a point at which you need to score. That feels a little bit less sustainable to me than having Kane, Son, and Kulisevsky, all of whom are just rampant at the moment. You know, they're getting goals and assists most games and so I, I don't know I, I, it'll be very very interesting I mean I've always said I thought Spurs would come forth and I think more people now are starting to come round to that just because it doesn't take much to change it and if Arsenal don't win tonight which I think there's a very decent chance they won't then it looks as though suddenly Spurs have the momentum and with the looming Chelsea away, that Chelsea United West Ham run to come. One thing, there were a couple of things actually that stick out. I'm really, really curious to see how Spurs do against Liverpool because I think if any team can expose that defensive high line that Jack mentioned earlier, the fact that Liverpool basically give you half of the pitch, I think Spurs could do it and they did it in the home game. Admittedly, it was a bit of a weird game because there were lots of COVIDs on both sides, but they really exposed that Liverpool high line. That, that is going to be a really interesting thing to look out for. That's going to be tactically fascinating, isn't it? Like, do Tot- do Liverpool play into mm. Tottenham's hands? Like, it's, it, Liverpool surely can't divert from their plan A. Why would they? To Why play- would they? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. They're one of the best teams ever. Yeah, and they're playing incredibly well, and they have to win because they have to win the title. So, but it's like you can kind of you can I can see a world in which Tottenham get in a few times in that game and cause Liverpool problems equally. I can see at the other end of the pitch as an issue because Tottenham always likes to play out from the back. The ball will always go to Romero and Dyer at the start of every Tottenham attack. And Liverpool's and press is that, really Mane, impressive. Firmino, mm-hmm. Jota, Salah will be all over them. Mm. So both like the the distinctive styles of each side are both an invitation to the other team to attack them, but also like potentially um, a kind of Achilles heel. So that is going to be one of the games of the season. I like the way Charlie is now moving himself into a position of uh, people, more people are seeing that I'm almost right. Um, and, <laughs> oh, oh, and, well, and of course, Charlie, with my Spurs hat on, I, I will personally hold a small party for you when you turn out to be absolutely correct. This is basically an extension of what Jack was talking about before with the the dopamine hit. I, I just it's basically just for that, mm. so that you know you get uh, you, you can revisit old tweets where you've taken pelters and say, "Ha, see, I was right," which is basically what life is, isn't it? Is trying to prove that you know more than other people, and it's and it's why it's why social media, which I think is actually if you drill down a hate hive, um, why social media is addictive because it, the 
the approval of a handful of strangers can get can give us a good mood for 15 minutes after it happens it's nuts gentlemen totally it's, it's totally mad. crazy yeah on that liverpool point as well just i mean that city you'd say the same against spurs that they're never going to compromise and change the way they play and in so doing spurs have taken six points off them this season so yeah it, it will be interesting I, I i think liverpool will do exactly the same and then it's up to Spurs to exploit it. Anyway, this game's like seven games away. I know, away I know. It may be meaningless or Liverpool might be preparing for a Champions League final. Who knows uh, what's going to happen. Thank you very much indeed, both of you. Um, a cheery day, not just because one or two people approved of us on Twitter because Spurs played pretty well, particularly in the second half there against Newcastle. Um, when we come back the next time we'll be on the podcast, we'll know more uh, about where this running is going because Arsenal will have played Uh, and all the rest of that. Listen, thank you very much indeed. Also, when we come back next time, um, we'll have time to talk about potential personnel clashes brought up by the World Cup draw. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I should say to all of you listening, that if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, then you can read all of our articles, Charlie's, Jack's, and many, many others. They're piled high, and they're all good uh, on Spurs and everything else on the site by simply going to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. And right now, it's a bargain. You can sign up for just a pound a month for six months. We'll be back on Thursday. Thank you all for listening. Bless you. The Athletic.